Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director at Boston Private. Today, we continue our series of discussions focused on the results of the Family Office Survey that we released recently. In that report, we asked over 200 Family Office executives to give us their thoughts on risk and threat matters that they face every single day. The results were illuminating. Uh, On one hand, answered uh, many questions that we'd faced in the past, but also posed some new ones and provided some unexpected insights uh, into uh, the risk management characteristics and behaviors of family offices. These findings certainly open some new areas to evaluate uh, and present opportunities for families and the advisors to those families and family offices to address risk more effectively. Uh, My guest today is Tim Robinson of Shillings. Uh, Tim, before we get started, uh, do give us a little bit about your background and uh, specifically around your experience working with family offices. Thank you, Edward, and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Well, I'm a partner at Shillings, as you say, and just to explain, because it adds context to the way we have received and view the report, um, we are a fairly unusual organization, a law firm by history, but now multidisciplinary, and that means we've grouped together a strange cast of characters, lawyers, intelligence officers, cybersecurity specialists, and crisis management experts from the military, law enforcement, um, and other organizations to protect three assets, reputation, privacy, and security, because in our experience, those three are often linked and threats uh, that one that a person can face, or an organization can face against one of those assets can affect the others. I joined Shillings as a partner about five years ago, having had a full military career. I was a two-star general in the British Army. And I guess that means I bring into the organization some expertise in resolving conflicts um, dealing with very stressful situations and dealing with particularly sensitive problems, analysing them and making sure the solution improves the situation and doesn't make it worse. Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, yeah, I think you know one of the things that we had discussed in terms of this uh, white paper and the survey it results itself was the aspect of are these issues, you know, a North American or U.S centric or, or or limited to that or is there some you know you know universal truths that can be seen around the world i know from your purview you certainly work with a lot of families uh in 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 many different parts of the world particularly in europe um what what, what are your thoughts on that based on based on the findings that uh, we talked about yeah so just to pick up um the kind of clients we have i mean our clientele uh, there are already four categories. Um, the largest category are private individuals, including family businesses and the family offices that support them. Um, so let's say unlisted companies. Um, some of them can be enormous, but nonetheless, they're not public public companies. Then there is a whole bunch of public companies and um, multinational uh, listed companies. We have quite a large um, entertainment clientele, uh, which is how the firm started, actually. So the very high profile people in that world. And then governments, and um, and they tend to be quite closely linked with family businesses, actually, to complete the circle, because in some parts of the world, governments and the families that are uh, ruling families, for example, that are connected to those governments um, have their own family offices. So we have a very diverse clientele, um, and the family business part of it is probably the most significant in terms of size. 
And in linking that um, kind of perspective back to the report, I mean, what's striking to us is that although most of the families that took part in the survey are from um, North America, um, actually, if we had to come up with a list of issues, risks that threaten or concern family offices in every, on every continent, uh, it will be the same one. So, um, you know, it's a very comprehensive, we think it's a really strong report in terms of capturing the risks. We don't think there are any missing. Um, and the findings broadly match what we would expect to see in other continents with taking account of some cultural differences you might find. Sure. So, uh, Tim, one of the findings that uh, we, we discussed earlier was around underestimating of um, cyber risks for family offices. How do you see that play out in uh, the families that you work with? Well, actually, um, underestimation, um, I think, is a big theme of the report for all the risks. Uh, there's this expression, I think, a culture of us underestimating risks. Um, and you explain why it may be the case that, and it's not just family offices, to be honest, but why busy organizations with lots to do and not enough people to do it sometimes underestimate these risks or don't want to think about them or maybe don't even know about them. So I think underestimation is a theme across many of these risks. In the case of cybersecurity, which is the one that kind of is possibly the most talked about because it's very public and keeps people awake at night. Um, what jumped out at me actually is the is the fact that 26% of the family officers consulted um, had, had suffered a cyber attack, which I think is a you know probably only at the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I'd be more concerned about the the balance, the rest of family officers who who either didn't want to answer the question or um, think they didn't haven't had a cyber attack. So. That statistic, in some senses, you might think that's quite small, and it is too small. You know, there will be many more family offices that um, have suffered an attack and don't know it. So, the big thing, the big takeaway from that really is, if you know you've had, you've experienced some sort of attempt to attack or actual hack or some sort of data breach, then it implies you've got a system in place to know that. So, you're kind of in a better place than all of those out there who, can, who are going around saying I'm, we haven't had one um, because it's unlikely that's the case. It means that their systems haven't picked it up. Or it, it could also mean that the, the attack is a little more subtle. I, I think that I think you bring up a really good point in terms of families that don't even know uh, they've had some sort of a breach, whether it's in cyber or privacy or other areas as part of it. How do you... I, I, you know, I think on, on one hand, it would be interesting. How do you begin that conversation with families to, to take a look at that uh, more seriously? And then what, what are kinds of the uh, uh, things that you're seeing on your end um, when, when families do get attacked? What, what are some common, common themes in that? Well, alertness is the key to this, really, because if you're, and it applies to many of the risks, you know, for example, the risk of, of, um, of an employee behaving in, in uh, dishonestly or something like that. You know, it's all about alertness. I mean, if you're not looking, then you won't see. Um, and if you're not listening, then you won't hear. So alertness is very important. Um, and, and having a kind of risk mindset, which I think things like this report, uh, should your family officers dig into it, is a great tool because it enhances alertness. 
um, then you have, um, you've got to be very careful about the information you put out there. I mean, hackers are, uh, people think that hackers are kind of computer experts. I mean, they know a little bit about computers, but first and foremost, they're intelligence experts. They're good at gathering information. The actual act, technical act of hacking, pressing keys on a keyboard is relatively simple. You can pick it up, you know, watching a YouTube video. The tricky bit is finding out how to do it, how to get in, what are the vulnerabilities? How do I convince somebody to click on this link? How do I convince somebody to let me in, essentially? It's about persuasion, and the persuasion comes from observing behaviors. We reckon that the average hacker spends about 150 days inside someone's system before they do anything, which is pretty scary. I mean, that's a long time that they're in there um, observing and gathering information, having got in already. Um, so it's this kind of long game for many hackers, and they might put out uh, lots of attempts and see which one delivers because um, they're looking for relative weakness. So if you put out information about who's doing your accounts, you know, then it's not, don't be surprised if someone uses that profile to maybe make an attempt to divert some funds away from your family office by you know, intercepting an invoice or something. Um, because And that's come from them being able to pick up this intelligence. So that's really important is be very careful about how much information you publicly disclose because it will be just used as intelligence to, to put together an attack. And then the third ingredient, and which is the one that often people focus on, is actually testing your systems. You know, people will go out uh, and pay a cybersecurity business to do a pen test or something like that or, or um, run an attack against them to test the system. Um, and that is also essential and it's inexpensive. The problem is, is it's often done badly. Um, people look for the cheapest option often, and it's cheap for a reason. Um, and you really need to get a good quality attempt to penetrate. You need to not put out information that could be used against you, and you need to know what sort of information that is. And you need to be alert and suspicious. You raised some interesting points around, you know, misconceptions. You know, I can easily see how thinking of these attacks occurring from somebody hyper in a in a hyper technical expertise but your your thoughts on psychology are and uh, and using that uh for, for individuals to try to gain access to computer systems or or to families in general i think is an interesting interesting point because it it kind of leads me into the the next uh finding that i wanted to discuss with you and that's around insider threat and the risks that come from uh, the actual individuals in the family office. I think uh, most of the time when people hear insider threat and they're not familiar with that term, they're thinking of somebody acting in a, you know, in a malicious manner. Uh, but oftentimes those can be, you know, unwitting individuals. Uh, what, uh, what are your thoughts and you, based on your experience of working with families uh, on, on insider threat risks? Yeah, so just bridging from your uh, the way you summarized the last question and talked about the psychology, I mean, we, we use the term social engineering to sort of understand the organization that somebody might want to attack. And that's the same, not just for a hacker, but also maybe a journalist who wants to run a story on a family. You know, there's a bit of psychology in all of this, studying people and their motivations. Um, just a little interesting anecdote to bridge to the idea of uh, the sort of way people behave inside organizations. Um, you know, we ran for, um, we have run many, many um, penetration testing exercises or attempts to sort of, you know, ethical hacking, white hat hacking is sometimes called to test 
companies and people's systems. And it, it amazes me how our, the, the, these guys in our team who do this, uh, they come up with some very devious ways of convincing people to, um, you know, let, let them into the system. Um, and in one case, they uh, sent around a, a bogus um, bonus document, which told everybody in the organization, um, or to tell them what the bonuses were going to be for that year. Um, and, you know, in the hope, you might think that, that that would encourage people to click on on that link um, to see the document um, uh, that they got in error, and um, and that would let them in. But actually, that wasn't really the pitch. The pitch was to then follow up that email very quickly uh, with one saying, "You've been sent this in error. Please delete it by clicking on this link." And a significant number of people clicked on that link. Um, in other words, they were appealing to the what they'd observed as the basic decency and honesty of the people in the organization, not the fact they might try and get access to information. So a pretty dark kind of way of studying behavior. Now, I think linking that into the insider threat, another, this caught my eye in reading the report, was that the the very high percentages of family offices who did um, either no due diligence into new hires or, or just did it at the beginning. Um, and didn't it didn't do it on a repeat basis, and also quite a high proportion that, that didn't really do any due diligence into vendors and third party providers. Um, where they're carrying a really big risk. I mean, we found over thirty six years of of doing our kind of work that mm, somewhere around ninety ninety three percent of all of the reputation, privacy, and security problems that we deal with have somewhere in the mix an insider of some type. Um, so that's a very high proportion and um, we're always looking for that link. And the fact that a lot of family officers, according to your surveys, um, you know, not, not protecting themselves against that is, is quite alarming. And, and this isn't because, you know, everybody's bad and you've got to be suspicious of everybody, but because you just really need to know who you're, who you're dealing with. And that applies not just to employees in the family office, and some of those family offices are quite small, so it's you know, not as difficult as checking everybody in a big corporation. But it also applies actually to family members. I mean, one of the other risks you've identified is, you know, which is the most perhaps the most sensitive one, is that, you know, disputes or, or falling out within families between generations. Um, but also, what about someone marrying into a family whose motives might be suspect? You know, and, and that's a very sensitive area in which to conduct due diligence. But certainly with providers um, from outside, from employees, people joining the family, household, domestic staff, particularly heads of security, you know, all of the, the um, personal assistants, um, all of these people sit, no matter how senior they are, no matter how much they, how well paid they are, they sit in sensitive positions. And if their motives are wrong, um, or they're in trouble themselves, or they're blackmailed or approached, um, you've got to be clear on whether you can rely on them or not. And that means checking out um, where they've come from um, and really understanding who it is that you're bringing into, essentially bringing into your home and certainly into your bank accounts. So, you know, certainly from your position as a former uh, senior, you know, government official. I mean, you were entrusted with, uh, you know, a, a trusted status, and that, that involved, uh, I'm sure, uh, some background checks that were part of that. How do you work with family offices to convince them that uh, that you know periodic evaluations 
uh, may be necessary when it it sounds like it's it, it's counter to the the culture at least for the families that we uh that we uh, encountered in this survey well I, I i think the start point is probably to make it not counter to the culture you know to accept it perhaps look at it in a different way which involves you know people like me i suppose laying it out differently and trying to be persuasive about looking at it differently i mean my point would be when you when you hire people or where people come into families through marriage or um you know whatever whatever or you're going to go into a joint venture with somebody or you're going to buy a business i mean you're basically putting your name and your money on the line and you know just as you would expect to carry out sort of financial due diligence on an acquisition or a purchase um or you would satisfy yourself by looking at you know reviews before buying even the most basic item um why would you not do that with um with people and it can be done in a you know ethical and um transparent way i mean if someone's got a problem with what you're doing then that's a bit of a red flag in itself so i think you just gotta you know it's a conversation like the one we're having where you just demystify it um highlight it as being just a statistical probability that family offices and and families um of means and influence and power uh, and profile will experience a problem generated by some sort of insider and i mean there's a group of insiders we haven't talked about like deliberate infiltration you know an undercover journalist joining an organization um uh, or uh, some or uh, someone involved in industrial espionage uh, you know a competitive um, type of infiltration so there's that those are in the mix as well and it might not necessarily be in the family office per se if a fairly small team but it might be in one of the companies um which can cause the same same sort of problem so in summary i think they have to be aware of the likelihood um that there's going to be this kind of problem um be um sleep easy at night by knowing exactly who they've got put on board um, which is a fairly simple process and and absolutely a fraction of the cost of dealing with the fallout if it goes wrong well uh, thank you, Tim. I, I really appreciate uh, you joining me today and, and, and uh, for Shillings uh, for, for partnering with us uh, on this uh, podcast today. And, and to the folks that are listening, if you'd like to get in touch with Tim or if you have any questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, uh, including the paper uh, that uh, Tim and I had discussed and sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast and much, much more directly uh, right in your inbox. That website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. That's it for today. Check back for a podcast next week. Bye, everybody. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice.
The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.